One, two, one, two, three, four. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. You probably don't need me to tell you that the voice kicking off this episode belonged to James Brown, the godfather of soul, who grew up from poverty in Georgia to become one of the biggest selling and most influential musicians in history. Brown died on Christmas Day 2006. His last years were tangled up in accusations of assaulting his wives and abusing drugs. The official cause of death was a heart attack. But some people who knew Brown well suspect that there's more to the story. They think he was murdered. I gotta be honest, the true crime celebrity murder story is normally not my thing. But Thomas Lake and the work he's done over the years as a reporter and writer, that is my thing. Thomas, who now works for CNN, has spent the last five years investigating Brown's death and the 1996 death of Brown's third wife, Adrian. Lake wrote a story about the case in 2019 and has dived back into it with a new podcast called The James Brown Mystery. Thomas and I talk about how the James Brown story ended up in his lap, what it's like to dive deep into the rabbit hole of an investigation, and how his faith keeps him going in the search for truth. Here's our conversation. This podcast is about a story that you wrote a couple of years ago. It's based on a story you wrote a couple of years ago that was based on a phone call that you got five years ago. This, this story has consumed most of the last five years of your life. Could you describe sort of how it got started? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, early 2017, I was at my desk at CNN Center in Atlanta. Uh, in the atrium level there, you could l- look through the windows and see out onto Centennial Park. And it was some boring, I think, Tuesday afternoon, just looking into whatever the next project would be. The dust had settled on the 2016 presidential election. I was trying to figure out, okay, what do I do next? How do I get into this next project? And the phone on the desk rings. And by the way, the phone on the desk had possibly never rung before and might have never rung again after that. I can't swear to that. in a a legal deposition, but I think that might be true. This might be the one time I'm thinking like, huh, didn't even know people knew this number uh, because normally even at that point, it was mostly on cell phones. Uh, Somehow it had come through the switchboard. And so I'm like, well, is this the wrong number? Whatever. And I pick up and here's this woman uh, who has a lot to say right away, just uh, dives right in. Um, James Brown was murdered. I can prove it. Um, okay, well, how are you in a position to, position to know this? Um, and it comes out that she's a singer for this uh, Carson and Barnes traveling circus. So the initial question is, well, how would she know a thing like this? And so what, what uh, I begin to discover after that is exactly her connection to James Brown. But that first moment, uh, I just began to take notes. And newsrooms get these calls. 
and you don't always know what to do with them. And as a reporter, I think part of our jobs as reporters is to say like, all right, um, I don't want to just dismiss this out of hand because whoever's calling and they might be, you know, out on the streets or somebody who's just been out of jail or an institution of some kind, whatever, like we're told, this is one of the early things we're told in, in journalism is like, listen to everyone, uh, be willing to entertain the possibility of, of, of a story, not just from a powerful person, not just from a person with a PR machine behind them or whatever. And so some of that, um, you know, at that point I'd been a journalist for 15, 16 years. Um, and yet the moments like this, I think they really test us because it's still so easy just to be like, okay, whatever, bye, you know? And I did hang up. I didn't promise to call back and I didn't promise to look into it. Um, I thought when I hung up that day that I probably was not going to do the story. And But what was it about this woman, Jackie Hollander, that made you decide to keep going? I don't have a perfect answer for that, uh, but my best attempt at an answer is she kept trying. She, she she kept calling and eventually I forget how she, Some at some point I gave her my cell phone number so then she began texting as well. Each time uh, she seemed to demonstrate more and more knowledge of the life and death of James Brown. There's a test I think we do, especially after we've interviewed a few hundred or a few thousand people, uh, which is whether or not the story is true or provable, does this person believe the things they're saying? Are they sincere? And certainly uh, that was true. Whatever else might have been true, Jackie was sincere. What she was telling me was heartfelt. I just kept thinking, well, maybe, maybe there's something here. And without um, giving away too much of what may become, what may be there in later episodes, what did she have? So, so much. And really the, the challenge was sifting through all of it. Uh, this woman had kept artifacts and documents dating back 30, 40, 50 years. She's just this kind of person who saves everything. She had this storage unit that was full to the brim, full uh, just of this memorabilia of her life in the Southern rock scene. She had in a, a, a previous time in her life, she'd been married to Dean Daughtry, uh, the keyboardist for the Atlanta rhythm section. You remember these guys? I do. Absolutely. So I think people know, James Brown, mostly for his music, his hits, kind of a surface level. Maybe there's some people who remember him being involved in the civil rights era somewhat, and also maybe later in his life having some drug issues and that sort of thing. I don't know if it's possible to have a condensed biography of sort of who James Brown was behind the scenes, but could you give it a shot? Certainly a, a son of the South, born into poverty in rural South Carolina. He eventually moved into Augusta, Georgia, and grew up hard there. Just had to learn uh, on those mean streets how to survive. And um, he, he's told this in many interviews and in a couple of books that um, he did what it took uh, to to kind of just just to make it and eventually he, he caught a couple of breaks and here he is in 
Macon, Georgia in the mid fifties. He's got a band, uh, the very talented Bobby Bird, uh, the famous Flames. Uh, this is something that came up in my reporting that other, the band members told this story. They said that in the mid fifties, they were trying to break through. They couldn't. And that Brown had this idea that he would, if he just met this woman, like in a clearing or out in the woods somewhere, she would perform the ceremony. He could sell his soul to the devil and then they would just be famous. Well, it so happened that after he came back and something had gone on, no one could really be sure what, but very shortly after that, Please, please, please hit the chart. Please, 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 please. And James Brown never looked back and, and went on to have a remarkable career. One of the biggest ever in American music um, toured the world, became beloved, not just in this country, but I would say even more in some of the other countries. And he's credited for laying the foundation for even other genres of music, funk and hip hop. Uh, he's been called the most sampled artist ever. So as much as his musical life may have been precise and uh, and well thought out, his personal life appeared to be a mess and got worse as he got older, right? Not just things that happened to him, but things that he was actively involved in. There's no way to to sugarcoat it. Uh, James Brown hurt a lot of women. The, the stories are out there, uh, whether it's Tammy Terrell or um, I, I believe all of, if not all of his wives, most of his wives have said that, that he abused them, people calling 911. Um, he hurt women. He just did. Uh, there's no getting around it. And and later on uh, into the 80s, it's also clear that he began using some hard drugs. Prior to that, he had, uh, as far as we know, mostly uh, kept clean or not. He, he stayed away from a lot of those substances. But in the 80s, he began to get into some drugs, including PCP, and um, in some ways became sort of a, a caricature of his former self. And you see that, for example, in the infamous live interview on CNN in 1988 when um, many people who have watched it believe that he's high on drugs during the interview. And to move the story forward just a bit, he and this woman, Jackie Hollander, intersect when she wrote a song for the Atlanta Falcons. And James Brown sang that song. They met, they collaborated, worked together, and it led up to a sort of harrowing moment in this podcast where he's, he rapes her. And, and after that, she stays around him. And I think part of what you're puzzling through in this podcast is why she would do something like that. Sure. Uh, it's something that, that I've thought about a lot and, um, you know, it forced me to re-examine some of my beliefs about how something like that could or should go. And, and in, in the time since then, I've certainly found many other stories from women who uh, did not necessarily uh, leave their attackers or, or, or stayed near them for what, it, whether it was for professional reasons or they felt trapped in for this one reason or another, but um, it is not 
at all unheard of. And so, but you're right. I mean, um, there could be someone else who looks at it and says, well, well why didn't you leave? Well, she felt trapped uh, just as uh, as Marva Whitney. That's part of uh, episode three, which just came out. Um, a singer for James Brown. She and Jackie had similar stories in that um, Whitney was a singer and she was sort of in the James Brown orbit. And she said later he terribly abused her at one point, held a gun to her head. But she felt like she couldn't get away. He had a lot of people around him uh, spying and sort of enforcing his will. And um, and she was stuck. And then so two decades later, uh, Jackie says she felt the exact same way. Like even though this awful thing had happened, um, she was in some sense stuck in the world of James Brown. James Brown is, is even before this assault, talking to Jackie and other people about about being watched and watching others. There seems to be this sort of kind of overarching thing where he feels like other people, including the government, are are surveilling him, watching him. And as Jackie finds out, he's hiring people to watch other people. Where where did that sort of impulse or that, I guess, that theme in his life, where do you think that came from? Right. Great question. Yes, there's all sorts of surveillance and counter surveillance going on in the world of James Brown. And if you want to look for a starting point for it, um, a good place maybe is 1968. Uh, This is, of course, a year of great turmoil in the United States. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed in April. The next day, um, the night of the next day, James Brown was scheduled to do a show in Boston. And um, a lot of the city leaders were worried. There were all these sort of internal conversations. Well, is this show somehow going to cause more unrest or will it be worse if we cancel or worse if we have it? Ultimately, they decide that uh, the show is going to go on. There's negotiations with Brown about how that will all go. And, And he goes on. He does a great show. He delivers this inspiring message to the crowd. There's a bit of turmoil in the concert hall itself, but Brown just masterfully calms the crowd. And instead of going out on the streets, uh, people stay home and watch the show on TV. A lot of them do. And and so in Boston that night, unlike in a lot of other American cities, the piece is largely kept. And so uh, this turns out to be um, a signature moment in the career of James Brown as someone who isn't just an entertainer, but in some sense is a, a statesman, someone who uh, has this real political power and in, in this moment is using it for good. So Brown later puts another spin on it. And he talks about this in, in his an autobiography that came out in 2005. Uh, Brown says this was a turning point in his career and not in a good way. Uh, he, he he writes that after this moment, he he's convinced that he fell under surveillance by the FBI and the CIA uh, with the notion that um, he's getting too powerful. Uh, the, the United States government just does not want a black man to be this powerful and to sort of be acting on his own and doing whatever he wants, which may not align with what they want. And um, so Brown is convinced of this. He's convinced from this point on and really for the rest of his life, what is that 38 years that he's under some kind of government surveillance? I think one way you mentioned it in the podcast is that he thought that if people thought he could stop a riot, he could also start one. 
and that was um, what some of the fear may have come from. At the same time, as you document in the podcast, he is having other people watched, and there's this kind of shadow group that almost feels like mob-like around him. Could you sort of describe what people called the machine? Right. Uh, There's this key moment in the story where Jackie Hollander has become friends with James Brown's wife, his third wife, Adrian, who he was married to in the 80s and 90s. And so uh, Jackie and Adrian become friends. And eventually, um, Jackie says, Adrian confides in her. She says, look, um, we're up against a lot more than just James Brown. Uh, This is really big. It's a criminal organization. There are government connections. Um, There's all sorts of illegal activity that it's involved in. And so um, the more we get to know about this, the more danger that we're in because uh, someone might think we need to be silenced. Um, Now, I've looked into this myself and have found some very intriguing possibilities, but it's hard to like have definitive proof of something as shadowy as this. Uh, but certainly, um, yes, the the belief from Adrian Brown at that time, and, it, and Jackie wasn't the only one she told. I, I spoke with someone else who who told me the same thing that that Adrian Brown was convinced this thing you could call it the James Brown machine was large and powerful and dangerous. I think one thing that I'm struggling with at this point in the podcast, and that you may reveal more later, is why would somebody want James Brown dead at that point. You know, he's in his 70s. Whatever huge power he may have had seems to have waned. He's kind of seen as a caricature of himself now. Um, What would make somebody want that version of James Brown gone? I'll say I certainly don't have a a definitive answer for that. However, um, in, in episodes six and especially seven uh, this is something we explore in great depth he had uh, brown's fortune was worth nearly 100 million dollars at that point um the control of that fortune was of course going to be uh, greatly contested um and brown had some advisors around him uh, i've spoken with several people who were close to brown at the time who say that brown uh wanted to make an escape uh in particular from this one accountant who who was taking brown's money and coercing him and so i believe there are plausible answers to your questions i don't want to give too much away and i also don't want to i also don't want to like get into a lot of speculation i have to be really careful on that point uh but I do believe there are some plausible answers to the question of of who might want Brown dead and why. What happened to his money, by the way? There was, I know there's been some estimates that there was 80, 90, 100 million dollars that he may have had at the end of his life. What what's what has happened to it? Right. We would we would need another podcast, Tommy. We would <laughs> maybe. It, it, I seem to remember some very complicated stories about instead this. of eight parts, we need probably. 20 or 30 parts to talk just about uh the what was it 14 15 year court battle over uh brown's estate it was um i think i might have read a hundred thousand pages uh 
uh, of that court file of, in the battle over his estate. I believe it has been resolved. To tell you the truth, I stopped following it as closely because uh, it ended up not having as much to do with my story as I thought it would. There were just so many new, weird, obscure twists and turns. I was focused on other things. When we come back, Thomas Lake talks about how his wife provides some needed perspective when he's deep into a story. And so there are any number of times when, you know, I've been mentioning this or that notion and she's just sort of like, yeah, but really like, I think she provides a really good reality check. That and more ahead on Southbound. Hey, this is Tommy. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Thomas Lake. And then there's also the death of Adrian Brown, his third wife. Um, and I think you part of this podcast is that you're laying out some possible connections there. Uh, Adrian Brown died in 1996 and James Brown died at the end of 06, a little less than 11 years later. Uh, one thing that I've discovered in my reporting is some odd similarities between these two deaths. And um <laughs> There's much more still to be learned, uh, but yes, in episodes four and five in particular, uh, we take a close look at the circumstances of Adrian Brown's death, which seems suspicious, certainly to Jackie uh, and increasingly to me. Uh, she she died um, in California while recovering from plastic surgery. Um, years later, a confidential informant for a police detective uh, wrote in this notebook um, that a medical doctor had confessed to murdering Adrian Brown. And uh, that is something that we, we go into great detail at, uh, on in episodes four and five. I, I wonder if this story that uh, this, you spent a you know big chunk of these last few years reporting and, and telling has it led to any sort of bigger conclusions for you about anything like the nature of celebrity or 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 greed or or government surveillance or any of these things has has this changed the way you see the world it, yes i mean the, the short answer is yes because um once i read Brown's book, uh, his 2005 book that described falling under CIA surveillance, I started reading everything about uh, 
the CIA that I could possibly find and just to try to figure out like, was this even remotely plausible? You know, could here he is saying this, but how does this connect with the available and verifiable facts? And the more I read, the more Brown's claim did seem plausible to me because there was so much going on uh, back then. Uh, operations such as COINTELPRO by the FBI and, and Operation Chaos by the CIA. These uh, these efforts to uh, suppress Black power, for instance, and to control uh, some of what the, the American population says and does. Uh, these things were well documented in such uh, congressional committees as the Church Committee in the mid-1970s. Uh, there's much more than that. Uh, one book has led to another, to another, to another. Uh, in the end, um, that rabbit hole is far, far bigger than just the world of James Brown. I'm still in it. I may never get out of it. Well, you mentioned rabbit hole just now, and I noticed as I'm listening to the podcast, you mentioned several times that you've dove into the rabbit hole regarding one you know, subtopic or another of this James Brown story. Do you, how do you kind of make sure that you're still in the real world? You know, because sometimes you can get so far down, you it's hard to tell what's up and down and that sort of thing. How do you sort of get some broader perspective? There are a few things, I guess. Um, <laughs> this might sound sort of silly, but one way is. Um, my wife, Sarah, doesn't read any of those books and probably probably won't. Uh, she's such a, a realist and so level-headed. And so there are any number of times when, you know, I've been mentioning this or that notion and she's just sort of like, yeah, but really like, I think she provides a really good reality check on me sometimes. But beyond that, I mean, um, it's not as if, that's the only stuff I read, you know, I, I read a lot of uh, mainstream uh, literature and and certainly keep up being employed by um, a major news organization. I always want to know what's being reported there and, and elsewhere. So I think um, there's a little bit of balancing of scales, uh, trying to reconcile, here's what, what we know and can be verified about the world and is coming from all sorts of places. Could you sort of talk about how you grew up and what your family was like and that sort of thing and how it may have influenced the what you do for a living and how you do it. From an early age, uh, I, I lived in Metro Atlanta. My dad was uh, the pastor of a church, a small church in Metro Atlanta. Um, my mom uh, had six children and homeschooled all of us. Um, she had come from an old Southern family in rural Georgia but um, it was also a, her mom and dad, they, her, her dad was in the military. And so they had traveled. She was born in Germany. They moved all around. And so I have to say, uh, this might sound sort of crazy, but I'm like jealous of people with real Southern accents. You listen to my grandmother who's in her nineties now, and she has just the, the perfect, like old South accent, the kind you would see on movies 50 and 60 years ago. Uh, but anyway, uh, we lived in Metro Atlanta for a while. Then we lived in rural upstate New York. We were homeschooled. And, um, so I got a chance to 
follow my curiosity. We would go to the library and pick out for, for the six of us kids or, or whatever, 40, 50, 60 books at a time. And the first thing, of course, you'd have to get home and go through the stack and make a list. Inevitably, some books would get lost anyway in the nooks and crannies of the house. I think there was one called See Inside an Ancient Chinese Town that was never recovered. Or if it was, it, it was maybe years later. This, I think, was good preparation for becoming a journalist because in the stories I enjoy the most, uh, I'm following, there's some question, there's something I want to know. And what's propelling me forward is every little thing I can do to get closer to answering that question. Uh, this is what I did when I was a kid, when I wanted to know everything I possibly could about World War II and about sports. And this is still true today. And so I think this sort of unusual homeschool experience uh, was good preparation for the work I do now. I also want to ask about being in a big family. It's uh, a little foreign to me. I, I'm the only child from my parents' marriage. I have a brother and sister who are, who are much older. But you grew up among six, and now I believe you and your wife have four children now. Is that right? What are the advantages, I guess? What is the, the draw of having such a big family? I think when I was in it at the time uh, growing up, probably I didn't know what I had. And there were probably times when I thought, well, I'm getting lost in the shuffle here and there. And, and how can my mom and dad possibly have enough time and attention and energy for all of us? Uh, but I look back so fondly now on on those times and I think, well, yeah, I've got three brothers and two sisters and these are five of my best friends now today. And I, I feel so grateful for that. And recently my dad was in a car crash. Um, you know, thank God he's he's going to, to be okay. But um, all of us in different ways uh, have been trying to help. If it was just one of us or something, it, there would be a, a much bigger burden. But because there's there's six, we're able to share the load a little bit on things like that. And um, now at, at at my house, yeah, four kids, 12, 10, seven, and five. It's a madhouse. It's a circus. Uh, I, I trip on people's shoes every time I try to come in the back door or, or you know, something like that. And it's chaos, but it's uh, it, it's beautiful chaos. You described in one of the early episodes of this podcast that you are drawn to stories where someone who's small and not as powerful takes on somebody who's big and powerful. And that's, you know, it's not an uncommon thing for people to want to write about or tell stories about. But I'm wondering, in your particular case, where you think that comes from? A few possibilities. The one that immediately comes to mind is... The story of David and Goliath from the Bible. You know, um, I grew up on Bible stories, and um, there are so so many of them are like that. This notion that um, even if you are small and weak or outnumbered or whatever, um, if you believe, if you trust in God, you may have a chance. And that was certainly true for the little shepherd boy David. It was later true uh, for. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Um, I still go back to those stories now and I feel comfort and inspiration from them because if this world, if this earth is all there is and, and the power 
that we can see uh, in front of us, if it's just as simple as it looks, then it would, it would be easy to give in to despair because um, everything is all set uh, in place and uh, it would be hard to change anything. And so that, that helps me, I think, uh, when I get out of bed in the morning to know that at least to, you know, to believe that there is a chance to change things, that God is there watching in control and that uh, maybe this world isn't all there is. What I'd like to believe here is that Thomas Lake is wrong. I'd like to believe that James Brown died of natural causes, and so did his wife, and that there's nothing more to it but a bunch of wild theories. But I'm willing to go deeper down the rabbit hole, because I have faith too. Faith in a reporter like Thomas Lake to give me a clear-eyed view of a strange and complicated story. As Thomas said early in our conversation, sometimes journalists get tips they're not sure what to do with. The stories sound impossible, and to be honest, most of them are. But every so often, a crazy tip leads you to an astonishing place. And it takes somebody with a special sense of mission to take the journey in the first place. I'm not sure I'm all the way there yet on the James Brown story. But as long as somebody like Thomas Lake is holding the rope, I'm going to hang on too. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.